0: Good evening and welcome to Ideas. I'm Lister Sinclair, with Part 4 of the Education Debates, David Cayley's continuing exploration of issues currently facing schools and universities. In tonight's programme, you'll hear from two American educators who have found inspired solutions to some of the same problems facing Canadian schools. We'll start with teacher Deborah Meyer's description of Central Park East, a school that began an educational renaissance in New York City's East Harlem district. Then we'll talk to Ted Sizer, a former dean of the Harvard Graduate School of Education, about his plan to redesign the American high school. The Education Debates, part four, by David Cayley.
1: East Harlem, sometimes called Spanish Harlem, comprises District 4 of the New York City school system. In 1974, it ranked last academically among the city's 32 districts. That same year, a new superintendent was appointed in District 4. His name was Tony Alvarado, and he had an idea about how to improve the district's schools. Instead of attacking the defeated and demoralized culture of the existing schools head-on, he proposed to create small new schools, and to try to draw standards and expectations up through them. The first of these so-called schools of choice, Central Park East, opened with less than 100 students in a wing of an existing school in the fall of 1974. Thus began a story that would inspire new hope for New York schools and become one of the seeds of a movement to change schooling throughout the United States. The teacher whom Alvarado asked to create this school was Deborah Meyer. She was a native New Yorker who had taught in the public schools of Chicago and New York and was particularly interested in bringing progressive educational methods into the public schools. The progressive movement in education had tried to make the classroom a vivid democratic community in which students are active and engaged participants. In New York, before the 70s, its influence had generally been restricted to private schools. Meyer, who had come from such a private school background herself, thought that lively schooling was suitable for all students and not just the upper middle class. When Alvarado approached her, she was already involved in setting up a program called Open Corridors in the Harlem School where she was then teaching. The idea was to foster critical public conversation amongst teachers about what they were doing. She brought this idea with her and made a continuing and consequential conversation amongst the staff, one of the cornerstones of the new school at Central Park East.
2: We talked an enormous amount. We shared articles. You know, there's always someone, particularly me, has always found some marvelous article that we all really have to read and talk about together. So there was a lot of reading together, a lot of talking together, a lot of arguing, a lot of strong views, a lot of visiting each other's classrooms, a lot of visiting other schools. We had a very... A very strong internal cultural life among the staff. We took, we went away together a lot. We'd spend uh, three or four days before the school year started, somewhere together, and uh, three or four days in mid-year, somewhere together. So, it, it, this the school was always kind of um, into something, as a unit. Occasionally, the whole school would teach the same thing, at the same time, like in the Tutankhamun Common. Exhibit was in New York City. The entire school started ancient Egypt. And we had a marvelous time doing it. And, of course, it stayed small. That, I think, was important. We didn't, as many good schools do, keep getting bigger as we got more popular. So that uh, the size of the staff enabled conversation to take place pretty easily.
1: A second feature of the school was a negotiable curriculum, one that could bend to meet the interests of the students, the aptitudes of the teachers, or current happenings, like the visit of the King Tutankhamen exhibition to New York. The central idea was to seize the immediately given as it arose in the thoughts and experiences of the children and in the environment of the school. In the natural course of
2: kids' lives, there was important and powerful subject matter. And the important question was, did kids know how to think about that stuff? Did they know how to put it together, organize it, sort it out? Do additional research on it. Ask good questions about it. Uh, figure out how to answer good the questions that arose. Present it to others. Hear other evidence. Uh, hear another viewpoint about the same material, and so on. That, what we later on in the secondary school came to call the habits of mind, were the critical questions. So that we you'd have to study something. You can't learn things without studying something. But what the something was was uh, far less important than how you tackled it. We had uh, one teacher in the school, one of the greatest teachers i ever known, who every year in the spring studies kites. Now, are kites in themselves an important intellectual topic? I, I would be very hard pressed to justify it, but there, there was the most extraordinary flurry of creative and intellectual activity when on in that room during the six weeks in which the kids produced the most extraordinary kites every year. Went out to Central Park and flew them And did all kinds of other study of uh, space and wind and different kinds of angles and construction. One time came to me and said, do you disapprove of the fact that I always study the same thing over and over again? And I said, no, because actually I think it's why you're such a terrific observer of kids. You have a repertoire of this material so well that you're fascinated by how different kids are tackling it. It's never the same year after year. But what's different is what different kids are making of it. And precisely because Leslie knew the material so well, she was focusing on how the kids responded to the material.
1: A third important feature of Central Park East was the school's determination to keep in touch with the families of its students. When David Bentsman, an education professor at Rutgers, interviewed the first graduates and their families 10 years later, he found that the school had often changed the lives of the parents as much as the lives of the students. The combination of parental involvement, a staff engaged in continuous critical reflection, and a lively, responsive academic curriculum built a school that was soon swamped with applications. Meyer and her staff were opposed to the school getting too big, believing that a school can remain a community only up to a certain scale. So they created new schools. In 1980, an annex opened in another public school a few blocks south, and then a few years later, a third school. By 1984, Central Park East was a family of three elementary schools of 250 each. Their graduates were enjoying outstanding academic success. Of the first seven graduating classes, 96% finished high school. The city average is 50%, and two-thirds went on to college The next step was the creation of a high school, starting in 1985. The requirements for graduation, Meyer and her colleagues decided, would not be the accumulation of credits, or the amassing of seat time, as it's sometimes cynically called, but what they called exhibitions, in which students would be asked to give a public demonstration of intellectual mastery.
2: We, from the beginning, agreed that we were going to graduate kids entirely by some system of presentation, more like a PhD thesis. Students would have to demonstrate to us that they were entitled to a Central Park East Secondary School (coughs) diploma. We have a graduation committee. It's the same graduation committee that watches all of your work. We may add a person to the graduation committee for a particular area because there's no one who feels competent to make certain kinds of judgments in that area. But this graduation committee, at the end, says to the faculty as a whole, this student has, over the last two years, demonstrated to us through these meetings of this committee the kind of work that we believe entitles them to a diploma. And that's true for all kids. But the kind of work they present can vary. There are some agreements. It has to include written work. It has to include some visual presentations. It has to include oral defense of your work. You have to present it in areas that show mathematical competence and the capacity to do historical thinking. And I mean, we have broken it down in all these ways. We even have a rubric we all agreed on that's a scoring system. But nevertheless, a student can argue with us about the scoring system. You can retake it if you can appeal to others if you don't agree with the judgment, and it is a judgment call. And we not only don't deny that these are judgment calls, but we make a big point about the fact that what we're training ourselves to do is to make good public judgments about the work of our students and our own work. We bring in outside people to look at the uh, judgments we've made. And while uh, those outside judgments don't change the students' scores, they are in a way a, a check on us um, that our conversation is remaining a public conversation and the judgments we made are accessible to other people to argue with.
1: These graduation committees, it's important to say, also include student members. One is judged by peers as well as teachers. The emphasis in both the granting and the gaining of a diploma is on judicious habits of mind open to critical public scrutiny. The most important of these habits of mind, Meyer and the other teachers came to feel, were the ability to assess and provide evidence, to appreciate points of view and why people hold them, to follow chains of cause and effect, to hypothesize, and finally, to be able to answer the question, who cares? What difference does it make? In Meyer's mind, this last was always the critical question. Their students succeeded at academic work. A remarkable 90% of the first two graduating classes went on to college. But the reason, she thinks, was that the work never felt, in the bad sense, academic.
2: The thing that makes that school, I think, powerful for kids and is the same thing that makes it powerful for our grown-ups. It's, there are lots of very strong relationships being built in that school across generations and across natural barriers of race, class, and that they are genuinely personal relationships, but they are built around important purposes. So I'm not to put this exactly, but it's the notion of work that it is a place of work. When some people, when we talk about school-to-work connections, well, there's an aspect of the way we talk about school-to-work connections in the latest jargon, as though school were not a place of work. And a good school is a good place of work. And it's a good place of work, which um, means there are also powerful relationships between people around purposes, things they are trying to accomplish together. And I think our schools feel that. I mean, I think when you walk around them, they have a sense that these are people who are engaged in common work together, have some shared purposes, and that regardless of their age, uh, they see themselves as colleagues. I think people feel that they are members of a common club. They are engaged in a joint enterprise. I think that's critical to learning. A good school should be a place in which we all see ourselves as belonging to the common club. can imagine ourselves taking each other's place, being in each other's shoes, and um, therefore are continuously learning from each other and are, have some control over who we choose to identify and learn from. We haven't, we haven't squeezed ourselves into a very small enclave but we're wide open to many possibilities. So for the average adolescent in this country has almost no relationship with anybody who is much different than themselves. I mean, they live in an enormously small world and can't imagine belonging to the many other worlds that surround them. Because for most kids, when they go to high school, they go actually to quite a small school, even if they're in a 3,000 person in high school, they're actually going to one of only 70 kids, but there are no grown-ups in their little community. And I think uh, the Central Park East Schools and the other schools like it. That that's one of the central characteristics that's different, is that the grown-ups and the kids belong to the same school. They don't just happen to bump into each other in classes and then go to their separate worlds. They really are part of the same community. I think that's a critical part of why the school is powerful. And it's it's how everything is organized. And I think it's part of all the ways we've organized everything, uh, that people are expected to take responsibility for this community. They're making judgments. They're rethinking their positions. They're arguing about them. So that it is, in a sense, a responsible democratic community. Not strictly in the sense of whether we vote on things or not, but it's a responsible democratic community in the sense that we are all uh, open and public about how we arrive at decisions and open to changing our mind about our decisions.
1: In her book, The Power of Their Ideas, Deborah Meyer imagines a Martian trying to make out the purpose of education in New York City. The visitor reasons that since all the children are engaged in academic curricula, it must be that they are all being prepared for a life of academic scholarship. But of course, they aren't, and they know it. And that's why, in Meyer's view, Education often fails. Stay in school is repeated endlessly, like some magical incantation. But the purpose, aside from the alleged value of the diploma in the job market, is never really made clear. The Central Park East schools address the question of purpose, not just academically, but in the day-to-day life of the school. The curriculum, the consequences of misbehavior, the requirements for graduation, All were subject to continuous revision in the light of a continuing discussion of purposes. In this respect, Meyer and her colleagues recovered an aspect of the progressive tradition that had sometimes been eclipsed by a too exclusive emphasis on the needs of the child. They brought to the fore the idea that the school is a democratic community and that disciplined, critical habits of mind are what allow it to function as such. Central Park East Secondary School gave its students the sense of a community worth belonging to and worth sacrificing for, something Meyer thinks has been increasingly absent in the lives of American adolescents.
2: Post-World War II was the first generation of, of adolescents in the history of the world that were expected to be irresponsible. Young people who in, historically would have been expected to go to work were cut off from adults with more money for self-indulgent purposes than they are likely ever to have in their lives. And very little incentive then for growing up, nor are many models of why it was wonderful to be a grown-up. So that we really have sort of institutionalized that just before you become a grown-up, you're in your most alienated and irresponsible subculture that anyone ever could imagine creating. And then we have created schools because the large, anonymous high school was in, became the norm in American life just about the same period. So we ins- created this institution of the American high school, of which also isolated kids from adults. It's, it's an amazing thing that we did to ourselves. And then, of course, we complain about it. And, of course, I think we're also very angry at adolescents because they have this freedom and irresponsibility, which... The rest of us don't have. So rather than adolescence being the staging ground for a freer and more luxurious adulthood, which I think traditionally adolescence was the hardest time and then you were going to become a grown-up. You could do what you wanted but in our, uh, we've created a society in which in adolescence you can do what you want and, and we're mad at those kids. So I think all this talk lately about rigor and toughness and them and uh, let's make the exams harder and harder. There's no discussion about whether the harder is better. The word rigor and hardness now have a definition of themselves. That is, they should be tough. And I think in some ways it's our anger at the uh, lack of toughness, authentic toughness of, that we created for adolescents. So I'm not saying it's easy to be an adolescent in America. I think it's very hard, but it is uh, hard for the wrong reasons.
1: In Meyer's view, the current move to increase academic rigor in schools is often a covert expression of nostalgia or resentment against adolescents. She also sees it as a danger to democracy. In place of a dialogue about the purpose of education and a recognition of the variety of possible accounts of this purpose, a smokescreen of numbers and rank orderings is created. This pretended objectivity, Meyer says, represents a retreat from the negotiated judgments on which the vitality of democratic life depends. We
2: need an an alternate way to think about how we hold each other accountable. And I think in a democratic society, you don't hold each other accountable by developing so-called objective measures. Uh, But in the same way, uh, the jury system is a good model for thinking about how we hold people accountable for law and order. And uh, we ought to think about that in schools, we should be Developing juries of our peers who judge schools and use a much wider range than of evidence that schools need to present and can argue the case, and that they can say, "Well, this means this; this means that." When you look at all these report cards and uh, all these attempts to rank schools, if the more you know about the schools involved, the more you realize that these categories are missing the whole point, and you want to discuss it with someone, but you don't understand that the reason they could, that this is lower than this is because our students leave in 10th grade or because we take in a lot of 11th graders or, you know, there, there are uh, re- realities behind these numbers that are totally lost when you try to, d- to develop an um, objective monitoring system. And democratic life assumes there's two possible explanations for this three possible, there are, there are potentials, you want to hear people's rationales, you want to hear their argument, you want to hear why they chose this way and rather than this way, but there are two good answers, there are different, we can all agree that you should, these are important things, but we can disagree about which are the priorities and which trade-offs we're willing to make, and none. all of that nuance is lost in the kind of ways in which we're trying to judge schools, and uh, at a time we need more debate in American life, more face-to-face confrontation and conversation to recreate a strong democratic base, Uh, I think we are undercutting it with these efforts to have national tests, national curriculums, national monitoring systems, national scoring systems, national report cards that get thinner and thinner, the data gets thinner and thinner and less and less real.
1: Deborah Meyer left the Central Park East Schools a few years ago, after 20 years as director. When she began, District 4 had 22 schools in 22 buildings. When she left, there were 51 schools in 20 buildings, and the idea of schools of choice had spread throughout the rest of the city as well. Many states now also allow charter schools, a further expansion of public school choice a charter school, is a public school with an independent charter that frees it from the regulation of its local school district. Meyer continues to believe that choice is an indispensable element in school reform. But today, she holds this view in a qualified and sometimes agonized way. She is no better friend to educational bureaucracy than she ever was. She recalls the board official who insisted on knowing the school's bell schedule and wouldn't be put off until she invented one, but she also fears the glorification of the free market in educational services. Choice, she recognizes, can easily turn into the pursuit of private advantage. She seeks the middle way and believes it can be found only by attending to the civic purpose of education.
2: What I think we're paying too little attention to is the messages that our kinds of schooling send to kids about collective purposes. That we need to, to continuously examine whether public chartering is is, is part of a trend towards um, everybody out for themselves, or is a, a wider way of looking at community. It could be either, but what kind of public policy could make charters a vehicle for democratic life rather than a vehicle for running away from democratic life i think is what we need to keep our eye on and the same is true about regular public schools i mean the geographic neighborhood school can be a way of isolating us from our fellow citizens or it can be a way of creating strong communities in that sense these labels sometimes hide what's really happening underneath them the same way that those Report card labels, you know, standards in schools and so forth, hide more. So does even the labels charter, public school, neighborhood school, school of choice are hiding. Some schools of choice, I think, are simply vehicles for creating class segregation within cities and uh, enable people to go to private schools with public subsidy. And yet, I think providing choice is very important because you won't have interesting schools if we have to pretend they're all alike.
1: Deborah Meyer is now directing a new elementary school in a poor district of Boston. It's called a pilot school, which is Boston's version of New York's schools of choice. The interview you're hearing was recorded in Boston last year, during the period in which she was setting the school up. She concluded our conversation by saying that what worries her most in current American talk about school reform is a feeling of recklessness. Finding the line between choice as an expression of community and choice as its repudiation, as she said a moment ago, will require a tentative, nuanced, and continuously revised public policy. But what she's hearing from policymakers instead is an unnerving arrogance.
2: There's a lack of thoughtfulness right now about the long-range consequences of some of the reforms being proposed. And I wouldn't worry about them if I thought we were thoughtful about it. If I thought, well, we're going to take this, but we're going to watch very carefully. But these are all being done without much thoughtfulness. Even the people who are pushing national exams and high-stakes testing and so on, are filled with that kind of chutzpah of, I know what's right. I'm sure what a world-class citizenship means, and therefore I have a right to impose it upon everybody else. There's a kind of lack of humility about it that just stuns me there's not much rethinking thinking about well what are the risks what do we have to do to modify some of those risks where might this lead have carried it and i think that's a real palpable danger to democratic society so it scares me i'm sometimes feeling more scared than i am other times one reason i think i want so much to go back to school full-time and immerse myself inside one school is so I worry a little less about what the large picture is <laughs> and spend a little more of my time on the small picture.
1: that blossomed under the hands of Deborah Meyer and her colleagues at Central Park East are part of a wider movement in American education called the Coalition of Essential Schools. Its chairman and founder is Ted Sizer. Sizer began his career as a school teacher, then went on to become a professor of education and eventually dean of the Harvard Graduate School of Education during the 1960s. At the beginning of the 70s, he left the university world to become headmaster of a large elite boys' private school, the Phillips Andover Academy. Towards the end of his nine years there, he began to wonder, why do we do what we do in education? This led him, along with several other scholars, into a large-scale research project on the American high school. It involved careful observation of 15 public and four private high schools over an 18-month period, as well as the publication of several books, including his own, Horace's Compromise. And it led eventually to the founding, in 1984, of the Coalition of Essential Schools. One of the main findings of their research effort was that the typical American high school has become what Sizer and his colleagues called the shopping mall high school. Less an educational institution, he says, than a miscellany, of misdirected social concern.
3: The high schools are asked to solve all of society's ills. The high schools are essentially a,
1: a mirror of
3: American society when it feels bad. Any time there's a problem, we add a course. Uh, Any we're worried about uh, disabled children, we expect the schools to step in. If we worry about poverty, if we worry about competition with the Russians, the schools are supposed to be part of the weaponry, and what has evolved are high schools with these groaning menus of obligations, far in excess of what they can conceivably uh, address, Uh, with a result that most of what we try to do, we do very superficially.
1: This curricular overload, Sizer says, is just one of the obstacles to serious education in high schools. Another is the importance of the high school as a rite of passage. In the United States, high school uh, is one of the
3: great rituals of growing up. Uh, um, We're the only country, or almost the only country, which has these elaborate graduation ceremonies where all the public school children dress up like monks in caps and gowns and parade across the, the stages. High school graduation meant it was all right to get married Uh, High school graduation meant it was okay to do all kinds of things. That is, it had ritual meaning. And it took place between the ages of 17 and 18. And uh, graduation uh, is almost a kind of secular bar mitzvah in this country. And you don't mess with that easily. You don't say to a child, you graduate when you show me you can do some things. Because that might mean that she won't graduate between the ages of 17 and 18 the social side of high school became intensely important and one of the fascinating things about American high schools is how common those rituals are even though schools are widely dispersed in different parts of the country and under the direction of separate school boards homecoming Thanksgiving Day football the junior prom cheerleaders these rituals are are ubiquitous And uh, because they have social meaning. You don't mess with that. You don't mess with that. Um, Furthermore, until recent times, you didn't have to work very hard in high school and still look forward to a career where you could earn a good salary. A um, uh, persistence and a strong back and modest academic attainments meant you could do very well, thank you. And so we didn't need to go beyond the rituals. That was enough. You know, uh, as late as the 1950s, uh, Harvard presidents, that's about 20%, really, should aspire to serious intellectual work. And the rest should be given respectful, intellectual, but shall we say, um, guardedly limited education. And what we're seeing now is strong backs and persistence and modest intellectual attainments will not mean That you can make it in the society. And that is one of a number of reasons where political leadership is saying, you know, we we can't have this merely as a social ritual anymore. There's much more at stake here, and that uh, serious and flexible minds must be something everybody has, not just 20 percent.
1: Alongside these essentially social impediments to education, Sizer sees a central pedagogical difficulty. Ever since compulsory public education achieved its now canonical form around the beginning of this century, school has been rigidly defined as a lockstep progress along a graded curriculum through which one advances as much by age as by achievement. This universal mechanism, Sizer believes, is seriously at odds with the diversity of children and the variety of learning styles. We're still stuck in the early
3: 20th century notion that. All children are roughly alike, and they all learn roughly in the same way. And that the proper metaphor for that learning is uh, we teachers delivering services into the heads of those kids. And so we march them through a common curriculum with a common pedagogy, with a common assessment system. We grade them by their chronological ages. And we think we've done our job if we've merely told the children things. Now, all of those assumptions are wrong children learn in profoundly and interestingly different ways. Their development intellectually is as mysterious and varied as their development physically. Being told things, a day full of sermons, uh, yields very thin gruel. People learn and remember when they do things, and when they use things, and when they see things in context. And so uh, our projects now focus very much on taking account of the of the different ways that children learn, and take account of the different contexts in which they grow up, and insist that they are engaged. They're not just sitting there passively, writing down on their slates what
1: we tell them. What Sizer calls our projects are the schools that have addressed the difficulties he's been talking about, and now comprise the Coalition of Essential Schools. When I met with him last year, more than 200 schools were full partners in the coalition, with 790 in the planning or exploring stage. When he began in 1984, there were only a handful, including the Central Park East schools. These schools, he says, acknowledged some simple common principles, but they also recognized that no two good schools are ever alike. What makes
3: a good high school, we felt from our research, was a a very sensitive relationship with its own immediate community and that uh, good high schools were led by authoritative faculty and authoritative faculty had the power and the obligation to craft their school in ways which were respectful of the best aspects of their own community which is to say a very very good school in inner city new york might look very very different from a very very good school in suburban pittsburgh or rural nebraska so we didn't have a model We didn't say, okay, there are seven steps to heaven and we'll teach you the seven. We said, no, you've got to to design the steps in ways that make sense with your own setting. And furthermore, you must take authority. You must hold yourselves accountable. You must do it. Now, in front of that assumption were some simple ideas, very old-fashioned ideas, which we call common principles, which in our research we found often were honored only in the breach, or totally ignored. They're sim- very simple. you know. No two kids are alike, so a good school has to take them one by one. You have to personalize schooling. If you do that, the teachers have to know the kids, each one. So you can't run a high school, as is typical in this country, where teachers have anywhere from 100 to 200 children to get to know, coming at them in groups of 25 to 40. So we said to them, you have to start with the assumption that these kids, bless them, are different. And unless you know how they're different, you can't teach them well. So you have to rearrange the school so that no teacher has more than 80 kids. Um, Another one, you don't graduate until you exhibit, which means the faculty has to be clear on what the youngster shows it. That is, you have to cast the curriculum in terms of what a kid can do that's radically different the way we usually describe curriculums is as lists of things you could go to algebra 1 algebra 2 but when you say okay when it's all done what can the youngster do what kinds of questions can you pose to the youngster that you expect him to be able to answer and defend publicly so that turns the curriculum on its head you start backwards you say what is it what does the child look like what can the child do and on the basis of that and assuming that no two of them are quite alike, how do we plan backwards? So these are very, I mean, these are a couple of ideas. They're very simple. They're, they're very uncontroversial. They're old as the hills. But if you take them seriously, they involve a revolution. And our assumption is that the revolution will take place within roughly the existing budgets of, of schools. So we found uh, first five and then 12 places where principals and teachers and school boards said, yeah, I think we can do this. And we also think we have the political running room to pull it off. And the 12 went to 20 and the 20 went to 45 and the majority failed at it. That is, they never did get the running room when it became quite clear the tough decisions that had to be made. That is, instead of doing 35 things, we'll do six things and we will do them well. And um, so it's gone from there. And there are now over 1,000 schools at one stage or another struggling with it, and the numbers grow very rapidly.
1: Let me propose some of the other principles and ask for your commentary. You've talked a little bit about size, and you've talked a little bit about the principle of less is more, the role of the teacher. If any
3: one of us learns by engaging, with ideas, doing things, if you will, thinking hard about them, then the teacher becomes a provoker and a coach rather than a teller. You don't really learn how to do something until you have to use it. And you really know you know it when you use it in what, at first blush, appears to be an unfamiliar situation. So what teachers have to do is constantly push good questions in front of kids. Yes, from now and then, tell them things or tell them where to find things out. But basically, the kids have to do the work. If they don't do the work, they're not going to learn it any more than we adults learn things when we, we don't do them. I mean, how many of us know how to run our Macintosh computers by reading the manual? We don't. We put the manual aside and we start playing with it. Same thing for the kid in mathematics. Uh, so that profoundly changes the role of the teacher. Now, as soon as you, as a teacher, say, OK, the kids have to do the work, the differences between the kids immediately leap forward. If I'm doing all the lecturing as I did in my early years as a teacher, it did not make a difference if the kids learn differently because I never knew. I just sit down and I'll tell you. This is the quadratic formula. Learn it. If I say now here, here's a problem, then you know uh, Johnny will tackle the problem one way and Susie will tackle the problem another way and there may be appropriate ways for those kids Billy, on the other hand, will approach it a third way, which is in the wrong direction. So I have to attend to each one individually. So teachers become more like very good editors of books or very good athletic coaches. They are sources of information. They are people who push, demand, harass, provoke, support. But they're not just preachers. And what about their authority? It's fundamental, I mean nobody knows how to proceed with my history class better than I do because I know those kids. The wisest person who doesn't know those kids can't tell me about the pace and substance in toto of the history course. The wise person can say, well, let's do, let's head in this general direction. But unless I have the authority as the teacher who know those kids to say, okay, we're hitting the brakes now because it's perfectly clear to me that most of you don't get what we're talking about, which means that I'm not on the, as they say, the same page as the teacher next door, because his kids are different from my kids. The most important decisions in schools are made by the people at the bottom of the typical pyramid. They are the decisions of the questions and the pressure and the encouragement pushed on an individual kid by an individual adult. And unless that adult has power and authority and obligation and responsibility, nothing happens with many kids.
1: That requires a revolution in public school governance, no? Absolutely. That's
3: why so many of us have been involved in getting running room from local school boards, uh, setting up alternative schools, charter schools, pilot schools conspiring with superintendents to uh, and with union leaders to do x even though the contract says y because everybody knows x is sensible but we don't want to fight about y so just don't tell me what you're doing but do it please there is there's is loving insubordination all across the system
1: expectations
3: Oh, well, uh, there was uh, a very old friend of mine, who's a very good teacher of German, and I watched him in the first day of a 10-week intensive full-time German language course he taught to high school kids. He walked in the classroom and started speaking off Deutsch. Of course, the kids looked at him as though he was, i didn't know what he was doing. And he kept talking, he's a wonderful actor, a Ham, and he started acting things out. and He got them to talk a little bit and talk a little bit. And they were all embarrassed and so forth. He kept on and on and on. And he finally uh, shifted in English and said, OK, you're going to learn 100 words a day, new words a day. They were in a catatonic trance. 100 words a day? And the fact of the matter is they got over 100 words a day. Now, what John Chivers did is set the sights very high, but in a friendly way. And said, so we're going to do it, you know, hang on. It's a roller coaster. We're going to do it. You're not going to speak English anywhere, ever. You're just going to speak German. That's high expectations. That is saying to the kids, you can do it, you can do it. And uh, people, people rise. If they see the reason for rising, if they're properly led, and if they get the feedback that, in fact, they can do some things.
1: The Coalition of Essential Schools straddles what is often taken as the great divide in education, the supposed opposition between romantic, progressive, child-centered schooling and rigorous, curriculum-centered, academically focused schooling. Sizer's views make a hash of this simple but prevalent dichotomy. He wants education that is both demanding and realistic about the differences between children. His view of testing, I think, makes this position clear. Testing is a question on which the conventionally progressive and the conventionally academic often divide into warring camps. Sizer takes the question apart and finds that testing is of several kinds. Testing is inherent in effective teaching, he says, but when it is alienated from the teacher and turned into an instrument of classification and domination, it becomes something else.
3: Americans have this fetish of, of thinking that testing is something done by strangers. It's imposed, or it's implied. The word, the word that we use, which I think is, it says it all, we talk about testing instruments, like their scalpels. Well, first of all, there is no test that I know that has any serious precision um, because of the difficulty of explaining the human mind. But um, uh, the notion that there isn't a test unless it's administered flies in the face of all good teaching. We're constantly testing, constantly. You can't teach a kid without testing all the time, each one, one by one by one. And it gets to a point where, you know, I the teacher, if I have some experience, I and my colleague teachers know the kids far better because of the endless testing every two minutes all year long than, you know, some test which is delivered in a bound box from outside and the number two pencils are handed out and the kids fill in the little bubbles. I mean, it's a joke, the distance between what I know about the kid and what the world says about the kid on the basis of these tests.
1: So you see almost no use for, shall we call it, norm-based testing? Relatively little use. You
3: know, you find out some things. Um, If the tests are tests of, of mastery rather than tests of how you're doing against everybody else, Uh, they're a bit more helpful but um, we test kids in order to compare kids in order to sort kids the early 20th century American schools were set up to sort them who are the 20 percent who are deserving but as soon as you say everybody's got to be deserving the notion of, of public schools being a sorting system becomes obsolete as you can tell I'm all for testing all the time endless testing and public Uh, and sensitive, and uh, respectful of the differences. But question, 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 question,
1: question. Testing is but one example of the way in which the medium of schooling becomes the message. External testing says you're here to be sorted and classified, whatever the motto over the door may say. Other structural features of schooling, from the architecture to the schedule of bells, convey related messages. If schools are to create thoughtful people, Sizer says, this quality has to be built into the operations of the school and not just preached from its pulpit. How do you organize a school
3: so that in its very activity it models thoughtfulness? For example, uh, I and my students are, are in a deep discussion of a Spanish novel and the principal of the school interrupts over the public address system to say, will Jones and Smith please come to the office and the cheerleaders will meet after school in the parking lot. That is profoundly thoughtless. It says to the kids, the management of the school is much more important than Spanish. And all of us in schools, those responsible for them, have got to constantly say, does this school practice the habits of thoughtfulness?
1: The changes Sizer is promoting, as he's already said, run against the grain of powerful habits and expectations. He says it's generally been easier to create new schools along the lines he favors than to change old ones. Schools recognized as catastrophes, and therefore without much to lose, have also provided fruitful ground for change. Where old schools have changed, they have often done it one piece at a time, converting, say, a quarter of the school to the new mode, then another quarter, until finally there are four new, smaller schools within the shell of the old one. Altogether, the difficulties of shaking up an entrenched system and creating what he earlier called running room makes him a strong proponent of choice in public schooling. Choice creates pressure on existing institutions to change. And over and above such practical considerations, he says... It's a right that ought to be extended to all Americans, and not just to the better off. The wealthier community says, well, I, I, I'm going to live in town X
3: because of its good schools. The whole real estate industry turns on choice made by people who can afford to move. Some people, myself, for example, had uh, government loans for mortgage loans. So we, had, we could choose our school district, and in fact, my wife and I moved from a city system to a suburban system when our oldest child went into ninth grade, and we did it because we had more confidence in the school in the suburban area than in the city area. So Americans are all for choice. The question is, should poor folks have choice too? And I think they should. Uh, why shouldn't they, why should mom and dad who happened through whatever for whatever reasons not to have the kind of income or the federal benefits that I had in my generation why shouldn't they have the same education choice that that I do I'm all for choice furthermore as a teacher I'd much rather teach kids who want to be in my class who opt in and as a high school principal I would much rather have families that wanted my school than families who were forced to go to my school so um, let me cast it in a different way. The one major universal abridgment of the freedom of American citizens is called compulsory education. As in most states, between the ages of six and seventeen, children must attend school. It is a real abridgment of their freedom. And as a result of that, quite understandable and I think sensible contradiction to the Bill of Rights the hand of the state has to be very light. And there should be choice that I, the father, while accepting the notion that my child should attend school, should have the right to say, I prefer this school over that school. Now, some people say, oh, that leads to segregated schools. Uh, My response is, uh, they're already segregated today, segregated by social class. America's schools are the most segregated public schools in any industrialized nation, but at the same time it is possible to give choice to families in a way that does not exacerbate the segregation by class and race, which is uh, very prevalent now in the country. So people, people say you can't have choice because it will, it will segregate
1: the schools. Uh, I say that's not necessarily the result. Choice, for Sizer, is ultimately a moral imperative. Schooling now regulates access to good jobs more completely than ever before. Fairness, therefore, demands that students have equal chances at educational success. Opportunity, Sizer says, is what the Coalition of Essential Schools is finally all about. The extent to which school systems track, that is, you'll go to college and I won't,
3: is the extent to which both you give up on people and, secondly, you play God. I, the teacher, know that because you're Hispanic, you really shouldn't try to get into California Institute of Technology. The evidence is that well-taught kids from every quarter can shoot into careers that none of us would have imagined for them. So there's there's a profoundly moral thing is every kid should be given the maximum feasible number of doors to open by the time he or she is 17 or 18. And um, that has nothing to do with global competition. It has to do with simple human decency. It has to do with using our talent well. It's a democratic ideal. So underneath it all is a, is a philosophical commitment, which sometimes is too rarely heard in an American conversation.
0: On Ideas Tonight, you heard Part 4 of the Education Debates by David Cayley. Our series continues tomorrow night with a program about why primary school students can't read and why college students can't write. A complete schedule of the series is available on the CBC website. Go to www.radio.cbc.ca and look for Ideas. Tonight's program was produced by Alison Moss. Associate Producers Kathleen Pemberton and Liz Notch. Technical Direction by David Field. A transcript of the whole series is available for $25, and a set of audio tapes will cost you $90, including shipping and taxes. Write to us at Ideas, Box 500, Station A, Toronto M5W 1E6. The Executive Producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Coming up, the national news followed by the arts today and between the covers.